Hi, and welcome to the Luminaries In and Out of Sect podcast, a show about the moon and how astrologers embody and relate to it. My name is S.P. Hall, and I'm your host. In today's episode on the Pisces moon as the sect light, I speak with the brilliant astrologer Cameron Cassidy. We talk about the placement of his moon in the 10th whole sign house, but we also talk about many other things, such as the challenge of having the moon in such a prominent position, some of the differences between mercurial and Jupiterian risings, the sect light as the predominator or the life force of the native, the master of the nativity, dealing with malefics in the first house, theurgy, relational astrology, and fate, and Manilius's poetry on Pisces and the sea god Poseidon. I also wanted to reiterate that I recently launched a website for the podcast. There you can find information on all the episodes as well as contribute to the podcast's sustainability by becoming a supporting member or offering a one-time donation. The website also has information on my services. I'm offering natal and horary consultations on a donation basis, as well as transcription, captioning, and audio editing. I want to extend a big thank you to Jared, who's Leaping Fish on Twitter, and Nathaniel Hottership for becoming members at the Gruyere tier. As part of their membership, they will receive a sneak peek of next season's guests and have the opportunity to contribute questions to those conversations. Thank you both again for your generous support. I really appreciate it. Now for my conversation with Cameron. I hope you enjoy it. Please be sure to check out the links to their website and socials below, as well as links to some of the resources that we touch on in our conversation. Cameron Cassidy, thank you so much for being with me today. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm super excited to be here. Discussion about Moon and Pisces and all the fun fishy things. <laughs> Wonderful. And I, I was curious. Uh, Mercury is my perfected time lord this year. I know you have Gemini rising, and I've kind of been wondering uh, not to start the conversation with like Mercury slander because I love Mercury. No, no disrespect at all. But I'm kind of like, how do you guys? How do you guys live like this? Like, there's so that guy moves so quickly. There's so much change. Uh, how is like? Uh, how's the how is the Mercury retrograde for you? How is uh, the movement into Aquarius? What's been going on in your life? Yeah, well, you know, us mutables are always on the go. Um, right. So this Mercury retrograde for me wasn't, um, I guess it wasn't particularly chaotic. It was definitely about coming back to revising some projects I had been working on for the last year and getting things in order to um, finally share them with the world, which I was able to do during that time. So it was actually a really productive period for me. Um, and yeah, I mean, personally, it was also like in my perfected 12th house. Mm. Um, so it was also like experienced just as a result of working on those things, like very removed from the world, like for mm. like a month it was like just very, yeah, focusing on all that stuff and myself and yeah, trying to get things in line to make things go smoothly and yeah, just continuing that effort. And then it, moving into Aquarius was definitely nice because, you know, that's the perfected sign. So that was definitely like a, yeah, it was a good, you know, it's trying my natal position. So it was like, yeah, things kind of kept moving smoothly. So yeah, I I, I actually, I'm really grateful right now. I feel like I can't complain too much. Um, just doing my best to yeah, keep things moving and started a new job, a gig on the side as well. Oh, like, congratulations. Yeah, I'm like working with 
place called Sacred Earth Sanctuary, which is a um, church that guides people through plant medicine ceremonies. Um, oh, wow. So I've been, um, yeah, just working with them and focusing on the, yeah, my astrology and all that good stuff. Cool. So yeah, Mercury Retrograde was just like you in the lab doing work. That's awesome. And I feel like that really paid off. Uh, the project that you released was super cool. It looked like an amazing product. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk more about that now or talk about that at the end when uh, we're talking about things that you're working on, but yeah, I, we can save some of it for the end, but um, yeah, thank you though. It was, it was definitely exciting to finally get that out there to people. Yeah. Wonderful. And just want to say real quick about the mutable risings. Cause I'm a, I'm a sad rising, but there's a oh, little, yeah. bit, little bit of difference with like Jupiter moves quite slowly there is there is this element of change as well but it's not quite like the change that can come with the speed with which mercury moves or even cancer risings with with the moon Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's definitely interesting to note how you know even among those similarities we have the discrepancies and i think there's just something unique in general that like the active mutable signs like that axis of gemini and sagittarius kind of has in distinction to um like virgo and pisces and mm-hmm. I think we'll be talking a lot about that because with like Venus and Mercury's whole dynamic by like their exaltations being on that axis. And then like with Gemini and Sagittarius, it's kind of like left to our own devices of this Mercury Jupiter. Like it's just that that polarity of those two planets kind of being at odds is like very, very highlighted mm-hmm. in those in that differences between the suns, which is just like doing things way too big and like taking things way too small. And yeah. like how both ways can totally trip you up and you know, get you kind of lost in the big picture or the details sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And there's that kind of like diurnal air fire element too, where it's like very visible, very. Yeah. yeah. Wildfire spreads the fire all over the place. Mm -hmm, (laughs) Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, I feel like you are a a man that needs no introduction, but can you offer us a a short or not so short if you want a personal introduction to yourself? I'm particularly interested in like, the philosophical perspective that you bring to your practice. Cause I feel like you have a deep knowledge of like, you know, I, I know you've talked about hermeticism and um, interested to hear different elements with that, as well as like who your influences have been, who have your teach, who your teachers have been like who you pay homage to. Yeah. Well, um, I guess for me, um, I guess I'll start kind of astrologically and move more metaphysically. But like in terms of practically, astrologically, what I do, um, the first like, um, yeah, official introduction I had to like a kind of professional course or a professional like take on learning astrology was through Chris Brennan's Hellenistic Astrology course mm. um, and his, you know, text and the, you know, astrology podcast and all of the kind of great resources he's offered through that to, yeah, just spread um, this initial work that's been done to recover the Hellenistic tradition. Um, and of course, through him learning from teachers like Demetra George, you know, lots of her lectures and workshops and um, like last year, getting to see her speak and go to a couple of her workshops and, you know, read lots of her books. And so she, I definitely consider her a, a great, you know, influence to, you know, many of us are very lucky to um, learn from her. And then of Absolutely. course, like, um, yeah, I would say I also studied with the School of Traditional Astrology. Um, so I have like a, my practitioners level horary certification from them so yeah studied with you know deborah holding and 
White Caves and Nina Griffin and Eve Dombowski, my loves, who are all great, um, yeah, great astrologers who I've definitely taken a lot oh. from from my Hori practice. Um, but yeah, and then I mean, just generally though, like I, I take from a little bit of of everything, like in terms of traditional astrology, like um, I incorporate elements from you know ancient Egyptian, you know, fragments, like things from like the Hori project that have been translated by Levant Laszlo to you know, Renaissance astrology and everything in between. I love medieval astrology, um, you know, from the translations of Ben Dykes and Dr. Olomi. Um, there's lots of great work out there that I kind of like to synthesize too. Yeah, just find the find an approach that I see that can kind of mesh all of that into something cohesive for the modern age. Mm. That was kind Very of a cool. long-winded explanation, but that's the truth. I, I kind of have a lot of different sources there. Yeah, no, I would say that's actually pretty succinct. Um, I'm reminded of, you know, we were talking a little bit on Twitter yesterday about Schmidt. And I think Schmidt had this view of astrology that it kind of needed to be philosophically grounded in in a Hellenistic worldview. Um, And I feel like, um, I don't know, I I feel like you do bring a philosophical perspective to your practice. I've, I've taken, you know, a class of yours and I felt like that was very evident. And so I was hoping you could maybe talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I would say that as much as I like astrology has sort of always been circulating in my life, like I first saw my chart when I was 11 years old, like my older sister showed it to me. She was like 18 at the time and getting interested in yeah, reading charts and going deeper with things. And I was cool. kind of like, wow, what is all this about? And, you know, it was very you know, like cafe astrology, like very, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess, what's the word? Um, rudimentary, I guess, um, takes on my chart. But yeah, that just started a long journey that eventually over the years brought me to actually, I would say primarily an interest in like Western esotericism. Um, and also, I guess, different schools of Eastern, particularly Vedic philosophies um, and yoga. Mm-hmm. And so I really deeply discovered the practice of um, yoga, which really just became, I guess, my next leap, or what's the word, the stepping stone or leap, mm-hmm. leap, leapfrog, I don't know, um, <laughs> to like discovering Vedic and Jyotish, Vedic astrology, Indian astrology. Yeah. Um, and that was then how I kind of finally circled back to oh, Western astrology and oh, wow. finding, yeah, just discovering the richness of the whole tradition kind of after that. Oh, very cool. Very yeah. cool. But um, I guess philosophically, though, like you asked, um, yeah, so I'm very influenced by, I guess, generally um, different forms of Neoplatonic philosophy. Um, so I guess particularly from like uh, Iamblichus, who really asserts that I guess we're all um, embodied divinities, mm. you know, that we are all embodying the soul fully immersed into this experience and that like reality as we experience it is you know we're not in like a fallen state and we're not Mm -hmm. like trying to achieve um divinity because like we already all embody it you know and it's an experience that we essentially need to not necessarily need to reclaim but like that we are empowered to reclaim through things like theurgy which Mm -hmm. is the active you know connection of the intellect and the soul through ritual practice to connect with ones um you know connect with the monad yeah infinity amazing yeah. 
Cool. Thank you. For I have a lot more to say about that too. If you want to talk more about theurgy and henosis and these kinds of things, because it definitely inspires a lot of how I look at astrology. Yeah, I mean, I'm. You know, I, well, I've been thinking a lot lately about. I mean, I think a lot about astrology and the fate versus free will question. And I was listening to a astrology and magic episode from the astrology podcast, which is like a three year old episode. Um, but Chris and Austin are kind of going back and forth where. Austin's more of the magical practitioner and Chris is kind of like taking a, a stoic philosophy, if you will, where he's saying kind of like things are predetermined. Every, you can kind of see most things in the birth chart. And Austin's saying is like, oh, well, yes, you can, but you can also like do magic. You could do theurgy uh, to kind of like have some uh, say in the way that, you know, these kinds of like astrological archetypal things can manifest. And so I, I'm really interested in this idea of like um, what in what in our chart is faded? What in our chart do we have some say in changing? You know, like I think that that's really the interesting thing about astrology for me because it helps us see like where to actually put our efforts, what to accept, um, what to put forth uh, effort to change. And so, yeah, I mean, if you have any additional thoughts, I'd, I'd love to hear them. Yeah, I mean, my mind's going to a bunch of places. I guess I'm like, like thinking of Porphyry's letter to Anibo, um, mm, yeah. where he's addressing this Egyptian priest with all these concerns and questions about like, why, you know, why should these priests, you know, say, or why, why do they need to abstain from, you know, eating animal meat when they're like sacrificing animals and like, in fuming or hanging in these vapors of like dead animals or like why um like why should we petition deities and like we need to like abstain and be like abstain from sex and like be chaste and yet you can like ask them to go influence some man to be seduced by a woman like why mm -hmm. what are all these like conceptual problems between like daimons demons or spirits and like how we reconcile like what kind of authority they have on influencing other people especially mm -hmm. when it's paradoxical for the way that like we treat certain like sacramental or like ritual um i guess procedures in terms of like um like ethically the standards that like one should hold themselves to to like practice and then like what you can actually command and like who are these spirits or demons that like participate in that or who do they like pretend to be mm. and i think that's really interesting like also through the light of like balance um who i'm thinking of it's in book five like right before he starts introducing a lot of examples of using perfections he starts he starts talking about um the idea of fate and that it has these two assistants called fortune and hope mm -hmm. and so you have fortune who i mean he basically you know just gives this kind of canonical definition that we know it to be of like this they call he calls them like these two kind of women who go around and fortune is like this force that you know brings people up and just to you know throw the cast them down and it brings from you know the most base level to glory and it brings you know highs and lows and then we have hope who i believe he like likens to like this invisible mistress like i think is something the greek reads along where mm -hmm. she's like this force that he says um appears to be close with everyone but stays with no one who is continually offering these you know idealized um 
you know, desires or like uh, potentialities just to take them away from you. And that like people are continually seduced by hope, essentially to falling in the trap of desiring an outcome just to not have it happen. Mm. And then he goes on to just say after that, like, well, all the, you know, learned astrologers and talented, you know, people and skilled in this art know that they're, you know, they're not influenced by fortune. They're not getting seduced by hope. They're remaining steadfast. And like at the end, you know, he has this like very iconic line of like, they become soldiers of fate where, mm. you know, there's that very stoic, like you mentioned, Chris is a you know, take on it, like that very middle pillar kind of approach to remaining balanced amidst the fluctuations of um, our life, which is a very lunar thing. And I think we'll talk a lot more about that with like this discussion about the moon and what Pisces is all about and the way that even that hope goddess kind of ties into that too. Yeah. I feel like we could go on and probably talk about this for another hour, like have a whole conversation about this. Uh, So I I do want to just offer one resource to people uh, in relation to like the philosophical view on fortune. Uh, And it's a book by Bothius called The Consolation of Philosophy, where Mm -hmm. he spends, uh, Bothius is facing, he's condemned to death. Uh, He was a Christian. um, But in the time when he's in prison, he writes a book about philosophy and how it consoles him. And he spends a lot of that writing about fortune uh, for like the goddess Fortuna. And so I just want to offer that because I think it's, um, you know, so much of uh, uh, astrology is about fortune um, or can touch on fortune. And we, we have a lot of fortune, which talks about, you know, the things that befall a person in their life or that can be a part of that. And so I uh, just want to offer that. I don't know if you have any additional thoughts um, before we move on, but. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess in terms of like, well, like what I mentioned before with the book is like De Mysteries, like on the mysteries, um, I feel like is a really great approach to understanding like Neoplatonic, right? So we're talking like everywhere from like kind of second century AD, third century AD um, take on like how we, work with these celestial powers in a way that like empowers us to embody the divine will like not even necessarily in the sense of like using our our power or our our will to essentially do what like he calls a goetia which is like the opposite of theurgia so Mm. theurgia being like the work of the gods goetia is sort of this like lower um, use of power to control the will to submit to carnal desires or whatever kind of effluence that is like not in alignment with the like universal mythexis of like the supreme deity's desire to manifest a chain of sympathies that are in harmony and like that goetia is like this break in that mythexis link um in that organization so i I guess that's kind of abstract but all, all these ideas that he talks about with like how we interact with that and i'd also recommend um Gregory Shaw's text, Theurgy and the Soul, which is goes in depth onto Neoplatonic Yambukian philosophy. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I'll link those in the show notes and I'll uh I'll have to get my own Iamblicus down off the bookshelf and and try to try to dig into that myself. Yeah. Um yeah, to move on, I I wanted to uh thank you uh because you act I was actually so we met on social media and, and I was, um, you know, a fan of your podcast and, you know, subsequently gone to one of your classes. Um, 
So I respect you as an astrologer and you actually reached out to me to be on the show, which I was really honored by. And so I just wanted to thank you for that. And um, I don't know if you have any additional like information about how we kind of know each other, but um, yeah, I just wanted to mention that because uh, it's been really uh, awesome for people who I respect uh, and who I think are really solid practitioners and voices in the astrological community uh, to like have reached out to me. I'm like a new student of astrology. I, you know, I just launched this podcast like a few months ago and it's really cool to see that people are interested and like want to participate and be a part of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I saw it's from the day you announced it. It, it, It's, this has been an awesome project to follow along and all the conversations that have come out with it have been just very, very elegant and very, um, yeah, pleasing to listen to and hearing people's, you know, it's, it's so lunar, right? We're talking about like our, our embodied experiences with the signs and the placements and yeah, it's, it's a really cool thing to be a part of. So I'm grateful that you, yeah, we're reciprocating the, the interest to chat about our Jupiter moons together. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So getting into the moon, when, when thinking yeah. back to your childhood, what was your relationship to the moon when you were a kid or, uh, what's one memory that comes to mind? Uh, in relation to the moon yeah i mean i since i was like maybe eight or nine years old um, was really interested in eclipses and so i was like essentially like you know after school like going on like nasa.gov going on like these really old like you know webs like prelim like old websites like tracking you know, I would print out like these tables and maps of like where the eclipses would be. And I, for years, was like begging my parents to go take me to see one. Like I wanted them to like take me to Easter Island to go see that one in like 2012. And like, mm. um, but yeah, so I guess like, I guess I was always very fascinated with, I mean, planetary cycles, but particularly the the moon cycle with the sun and the nodes and the, the eclipses. And I just remember, um, always whenever we did have like a lunar eclipse that you could see like every single time like I was always you know outside looking at it for hours and so I've always been very fascinated by the moon and her beauty and yeah I guess that's kind of an initial thing that comes to my mind about it yeah so you you were like an astronomer like before you were an astrologer what do you think it was about eclipses that in particular that piqued your interest I don't know. I mean, I remember like I would just watch YouTube videos of like people that would record them and like how majestic they looked and wanting to see them. And I mean, I don't know. Like I just I mean, like, look, I was like, right, I'd be like playing Club Penguin and then I'd like go on to NASA and like read about these. Like I was I don't even know what whatever even inspired that, but it was just sort of always there, I guess. I was I mean, like, you know, Gemini Rising, I've always been very curious and right and whatnot but um yeah i guess i guess that's kind of makes sense too just cool curiosity in general yeah i relate i relate to curiosity and just like oh this i'm interested in this um mm-hmm. so what does the moon mean to you today how has that relationship uh evolved are you still like under the baleful rays when the eclipses happen outside like not watching them <laughs> oh no, no 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 i am not or I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Yes, I actually am. You are. This is a hot take. Um, 
but yeah, I I love to look at the moon. She's mm. red. She's crowned in a golden or silver halo, um, you know, of the eclipsed sun's light. Um, hell yeah, I'm looking at it. Like I went, so it was finally when I was like um, 14, I went to go see, I got my dad to take me to Atlanta to go see that total solar eclipse in Leo that happened in 2017. Cool. And that was just like, I'll never... I'll never forget that day, that moment. We were like at Clemson University. So it was like a very, there were a lot of, there were thousands of people there. And as totality was approaching, you know, Venus came out and all the other planets and stars were starting to show up. And then just this moment of this unexplainable rush of spiritual energy that just filled the entire crowd. Mm -hmm. I mean, people were hugging strangers and screaming and crying and everyone was it was just it was like insanity I'd, i've never witnessed or been in a space like that before that just felt like i was so flooded with and and at the time like i wasn't super into astrology i mean i was dead set on going to see this eclipse but i wasn't like super you know like versed in like you know reading charts really at the time or tracking transits but like I knew about these cycles and I just that it was like that day that just began such an immense, I guess, journey for me in terms of like discovering all of this. But so I guess then it was that day really that my moon or my, my perspective of the moon really began to change in a significant way. And so, I mean, now, like, I think the moon can sort of be like undervalued sometimes honestly because mm. as a you know reading a chart the moon she's so special because she stands out among all the rest just like the sun do you know they're equally the of course the luminaries of the sky the king and queen of heaven and but even the moon will you know she always has something to say she's always whispering something mm. sort of that's like meta about the chart you know within her her placement there so she's really just a mirror of everything that's being reflected on the earthly plane you know like there's a reason that she is on the ascendant degree of the thema mundi you know like she right. is the planetary archetype that's symbolic of all of us down here mm. so whatever the moon's doing it's showing how you know we show up embodied physically day to day in our um you know, experiences um, that kind of reflects that sunlight, which is that inner, you know, will and desire and drive to enact that. Mm. That's such a wonderful story and such a beautiful reflection. So thank you for that, Cameron. Yeah. Appreciate that. Anything else you want to say in terms of like the importance of focusing on the moon in astrology or do you feel like we just, we just covered it? Um, I mean, I guess sort of just maybe tying us back to a little bit what we were talking about before with fortune, like the moon sort of being like the mother of fortune, who mm. is an assistant to fate. Um, the moon plays this role as she is a mirror for these, you know, earthly occurrences being the fastest, you know, the one who waxes and wanes more and more visibly than anyone else who you know, generates and corrupts and raises and lowers even the tides, you know, it's like she just, and, and I know you've already talked about some of these things in the show, but like just emphasizing like how universal she is, you know, like we all have a mother, we all were born from a woman, we weren't all born from a man, like, mm -hmm. 
everyone comes from some moon somewhere some womb yeah yeah so the universality of the lunar archetype i guess yeah um okay so your moon is in in pisces in your 10th whole sign house what does the sign of pisces mean to you yeah um well pisces that's the fish it's a water sign it's a mutable sign Um, i think there's a lot of duality in this sign for it being a sign that's often associated with um you know ecstatic union or Mm. divine um you know monadic simplicity it's i think actually very often undercharacterized as a sign that incorporates a lot of strife um, Mm. and obstacles through the duality that it kind of forces people to navigate so i guess some of my first thoughts about it are like yes you know we're looking at the home of jupiter the exaltation of venus it's sort of uniquely a sign that's programmed to um, initiate a propensity towards the fulfillment of desire um, sort of at the highest extent Mm. right and so what's so tricky with pisces placements and the lesson that that teaches is that like there's such a will to enact and like experience and interact with that bliss that it gives but like then we have to remember it's like well you know beginning from aries like pisces is at the end you know it's like everyone kind of wants to jump Mm -hmm. right there but there's a whole wheel of experiences that kind of have to come along in between that and particularly it's like capricorn and aquarius you know precede pisces like yeah we get like a taste of sag you know as we exit fall but like it's not really pisces time just yet until we get through like those two dark and cold months and get that you know kind of relief towards spring or rebirth which could be symbolically you know rebirth in the afterlife or just you know a new cycle of life beginning pisces is that like glimpse of hope that really the um the end is near Mm -hmm. um but i think also it still initially comes with some shock value that is can be jarring because at the same time like this desire to merge with and unite with that like divine bliss that's accompanied with the signs like archetype to really embrace it like pisces is comes hand in hand with sacrifice Mm -hmm. um like when we think about the fish like there's one fish that's upright and there's one fish that's lying down and it's really symbolic of you know just reflecting in the sky that you know we have a a you know ideal desire of how things may go like that upright fish but then we have this like base objective you know standpoint on how things actually fall into place which is not what we like to perceive but yet they both have to exist simultaneously and again that brings us back to that fortune and hope thing right where this like there's ideals but then there's realities that just bring things up and down and so for pisces to navigate like how it can balance the um the objective balance of how you're intaking your reality and like processing your feelings and desires in a way that doesn't become an unhealthy search for um, pleasure and desire without Mm. enough sacrifice or without enough um, endurance through uncomfortable emotions feelings things events yeah 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 i i'm struck by um you know you brought up a theme of Mundi earlier which is like the birth chart of the world which starts on on cancer um but then you also bring up aries as the first sign and i kind of want to differentiate between like a natural zodiac thing and like you know 
looking at, uh, I'm reminded of like world astrology, mundane astrology and the medieval Islamic it. And they also, you know, use that cardinal point of zero Aries as like the new year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just like a modern thing to look at Aries as like the beginning. Right. Um, but I, I was wondering if you had any, uh, thoughts on that as like, of like how we can think about these different conceptions of, uh, signs that we have from the theme of money, but then thinking about Aries on the first yeah. place as well. Yeah, well, I definitely have some thoughts about that. And it ties in a lot with the work that I do, like with the Dodecatomoria and the 12th parts, which I really emphasize always as understanding any sign as its own perspective relative to all the other 11 from that one. So when we're talking about Cancer Rising or the archetypal ascendant of the universe, um, Pisces falls in the ninth house, which says Mm. a lot about the sign's archetype. Yeah. Um, Because we know this is the house of God. This is the place where the sun rejoices. So the sun technically would, you know, be hypothetically rejoicing in Pisces archetypally in the universe, right? Mm-hmm. The sun rejoices somehow by topic in our mundane lives as it manifests physically through the houses, somehow symbolically through the zodiacal image of the fish, through Pisces. Mm-hmm. So that also brings a whole discussion about the solar connection to the sign of Pisces and Leo connection to Pisces, because those two signs also share the same decanic structure. So they all, they both begin with their first Chaldean decan, which is a equal 10 degree segment of the sign into three equal pieces, um, beginning from Aries and moving in the Chaldean sequence of the planets. And when we get to Leo, the cycle sort of resets and jumps back up to Saturn, and then it mm. moves into the Jupiter for the middle decan and then to Mars. And then if you go all the way around again, when you get to Pisces, that same reset happens and you start with Saturn and then Jupiter and then Mars. So there's an intrinsic connection between Leo and Pisces because of their um, affinity by the decans, but also the solar connection that they have through um, the sun's rejoicing in the ninth place. But, you know, we even see that, like how that manifested in society through the archetypal figure, like of Jesus, mm-hmm. who was the son of God as a solar figure, right? Sun, sun, literally, but also mm-hmm. like, the fisher of men, right? He right. was to be a Pisces. He initiated the age of Pisces. So there's a really interesting connection about Pisces that's also very solar that I think speaks to um, those like kind of spiritual expansive mm. experiences that Pisces longs to like absorb with. And that's so interesting because it is a quote unquote feminine nocturnal sign. And so to have those kind of solar significations come in is, is really interesting. One thing I want to point to as well, I brought up medieval Islamic it, but you, you know, rightly point back to the Chaldean decans, which go back to kind of antiquity, correct? Like the kind of Hellenistic period of astrology. So this kind of starting with Aries with the Chaldean decan goes back even mm-hmm. further. That's true. I wasn't even thinking, I wasn't even correcting it. That wasn't even my, but yeah, but it, it does. Yeah, it does. I guess, um, you know, they... The Egyptians were using, you know, that 36-fold division of the sky, and then it wasn't sort of until that, you know, those initial developmental phases of that syncretic, you know, Egyptian, Babylonian, Hellenistic astrological practice um, or practices around maybe, you know, 100, 200 BC, mm-hmm. that um, even maybe a little later than that. Um, actually, yeah, I don't, I can't tell you who the f- oldest source is on 
the rulership of the Chaldean deacons, but it definitely goes to the early strata of the tradition for sure. Mm, yeah. Super interesting. Um, I think in alignment with that, uh, what you talked about in reference to Pisces and sacrifice and fulfillment of desire, I believe it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't help but think about Pisces uh, from, I forget which lecture uh, Jason Holly talks about it, but I think it was at Norwalk recently. I might be mistaken, mistaking that, but he talks about the myth of uh, I believe it's Aphrodite and Eros and uh, the Typhon mm-hmm. and like Aphrodite and Eros are running away from this monster and to survive and to hold on to their lives. Basically they jump into the water, they jump into the depths and they transform into these twin fish. Um, and so there really is this, one like transformation from like land to earth, but there's also this sacrifice of, you know, it's like they're gods so they can transform back into whatever shape they want, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But there's this element of having to uh, transfigure into these different figures in order to, in order to escape the monster and survive. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, it's a beautiful myth um, because it even ties us back to the decans. Like there's a reason that we were talking about this, like Pisces begins with sacrifice. The first deacon is ruled by Saturn. Right. Um, and so with that, it's like, it's the same moment of like everyone in a, you know, desperate moment of despair, you know, calls and prays to God for help. Mm, you know, when there's that, yeah. you know, extremely violent or tumultuous situation, everyone turns to some universal unknown. It's a mystery, mm-hmm. right? That, there's just a longing for at that external help that we can't get from, you know, ourselves or from other people sometimes. And so that's that really ephemeral way that Pisces links us into intrinsically, instinctively searching outside of what we know or see mm. to um, and merge with it or interact with it or ask it for help, you know, whatever the situation may be. Somehow it starts with that spiritual crisis, you know, the dark night of the soul, right? Mm-hmm. Most people don't find themselves um, or get onto this path through happiness and rainbows. It might feel like that for a little while, but right. like we were talking about, fortune, you know, brings everyone up and just to slap them right down again. Mm-hmm. And that's just life. Um, and Pisces teaches, you know, how we can sort of modulate our own um, ego in a lot of ways by experiencing that fluctuation of the highest bliss, you know, exalted Venus, right? Like this super pleasure just boosted up to the nines um then to follow that with um you know the fall of mercury which is this complete idiocy and you know logical fallacy of the mind um and failure of the the ego to um you know rationally understand things and how that gets us you know tied into material circumstances and tribulation in our lives (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, so are you comfortable sharing where the Pisces part of your chart falls and how that impacts your experience of the moon? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, Pisces is in my 10th whole sign house. So as a Gemini rising, my moon is sort of elevated um, in a really visible place. And I think for a lot of people that have 
any planet in the temp house, right? This is a player. This is an area or place of our ourself that we're always putting on display in some way, mm-hmm. or that we're always attaching to our identity and our reputation. And so, definitely for people, I think with the moon in the temp house, I know myself. I experience it as um, vulnerable in in certain ways because, as we've been talking about, like this moon as the lowest sphere, encompassing that really. Uh, inner and deep side of our being uh, to have it so visible can be uh, challenging because it forces a kind of authenticity or even inauthenticity in Mm -hmm. ways that we have to adapt around displaying a part of ourselves that you know already an immutable sign right is more natural to changing or shifting and i know for myself my moon being you know applying to a square with saturn um it's shown up in in a lot of different ways throughout my life but i think for me living with a sort of identity crisis when i was younger um was definitely a way that i it just led me to really question who i was because i had to struggle being someone i wasn't for so long Mm. Um, because I, you know, was growing up queer in a private Catholic high school and mm. elementary school. And even before that, my, you know, from K to 12, I was sort of cooped up in this uh, identity that I had to assimilate to that, uh, yeah, just didn't didn't jive with who I was. And I think that also makes sense, too, with like Saturn as the Lord of my ninth house and sort of as like this moon applying to this um, angular Saturn sort of dictating this really um, regimented spiritual belief system that just doesn't jive with what I wanted to express naturally of who I am. Um, and so that like initial encounter with um, that kind of system that drove that duality um, of being, you know, in myself, struggling to figure out who I was became um, a really crucial part of the latter half of like my my teenage years um especially moving through my saturn opposition that was a really prevalent theme that i was dealing with in myself um so you know i think as well with like a saturn moon kind of aspect like that that can challenge be challenging for people in a lot of different ways because they are naturally pretty inimical to each other being the furthest apart visible spheres of the planets that we have Mm-hmm. Um, yet they they also are linked because you know with the moon we have a 30-day cycle in saturn a 30-year um the moon changing sign two and a half days saturn in two and a half years so there is this kind of hidden connection um and that's experienced though in a really like visceral and jarring way though because the moon being so sensitive and and soft that that hardness of saturn is really you know, just the natural natural opposition, right? Cancer and Capricorn being mm-hmm. descendant and descendant on the theme of Mundi. It's like totally the the principle of the self and being and the eradication of being and death and through um, the opposition of the other. And like I know for Saturn Moon people in general, this is going to be like having to deal with, you know, whether it's a health related problem or it's like dealing with a lack of resources, you know, or feeling like you are running out of time or always working against time or dealing with like that just destruction of the the lunar essence of the physical it's really um 
you know, kind of can tear you in, in two different directions. So mm -hmm. it's definitely been, uh, it, it has its own challenges, but I do think it, it also offers um, gifts in a certain way that like that perspective is so broad between kind of encapsulating all the seven spheres between them both being so different. Um, it's also just led me to such a deep curiosity and journey for knowledge through discovering myself and human nature. Um, you know, ever since I was really young, I've always just been fascinated with the cosmos and the world and foreign cultures and foreign languages and, you know, just that that quest of knowledge of being has just really always been a part of who I am, I think. So, yeah, I think those are definitely a lot of ways that it's been relevant in my life and how it's shown up for me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think the one thing that comes to mind first and foremost, I mean, I guess we'll, we can address the astrology first and then kind of address um, this other thing that's come into mind, which is a little bit more personal maybe, but um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts with Saturn moving into the sign that your moon is in shortly here. Uh, the Saturn, Saturn moving into Pisces in just a few days. By the time this gets released, Saturn will likely be in Pisces. And so, you know, you're moving into this, uh, this moon-Saturn conjunction. Um, with my moon in Sagittarius, I'm moving into kind of similar to your natal placement of a kind of transiting Saturn squaring the natal moon. Um and I'm just curious for, for people maybe who, um, for other Pisces moons who are about to go through this Saturn co-presence or for, for mutable moons who are, are about to go through a square in opposition, if you have any, any kind of advice for us. Um, cause I think, uh, I don't know if it was this conversation or if it was my conversation with Justin, where, you know, we, we were talking about some hard aspects. Uh, in the birth chart and it's like there's this idea that if you have a hard aspect like I have a moon Mars conjunction in my first house it's like I have my whole life to try to figure out how to deal with that you know like you have a moon Saturn square you have your whole life to kind of feel into how do I live with this configuration you know but I think transiting planets it's a little bit difficult because you have to kind of deal with things that are unusual to you you know unusual challenges so I don't know if anything comes to mind, if you have any advice for, for any of us, um, but would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think um, the best thing that we can do, I think as mutable moons, is finding the fixity, because mm -hmm. that's what Saturn's going to teach us at the end of the day. Um, the moon already being the fastest sphere in these double-bodied signs can be turbulent on an you know, interior and exterior way in our lives. And I think that um, rapidity with which we live our lives and with which we kind of let our minds move us around is, again, like as we've been talking about, it, it offers a gift, but also a challenge. And so Saturn's really going to test just how still we can keep ourselves and, you know, and our bodies, literally, our, our moons, you know, our vessels that we're here to um, embody. So mm -hmm. Saturn coming to our moons or hard aspects to moons is just going to be about reflecting 
on the nature of how we take care of our vessel, mm-hmm. um, you know, in an interior way. So emotionally, how we're checking in with ourselves and making time to address every layer of our being. And, you know, again, this is especially difficult um, because we want to, in some ways, it's hard enough to make physical practices happen, but then to go on to the higher level, it's like there's so many layers of our being that are always interconnected and it can feel like doing some kind of practice, whether it's, um, you know, physical in nature, like exercising or running or slow movement in yoga or even things like qigong um, Mm -hmm. and tai chi you know connecting with subtle energy those things can are great and Mm -hmm. feel very empowering because we get the immediate gratification or sensation of like yeah i'm moving my energy like it's going through my body i'm flushing things out but it's tougher with these more interior realms because we don't get that kind of satisfaction right away and that's mm-hmm. Sato's other lesson is that things just take time. And I think as we're all getting ready for um, this two and a half year transit, it's the simultaneous embrace of accepting where we are and what we've been through, you know, looking at our past objectively and not being afraid to look at it, um, knowing that things don't change overnight for ourselves. And it just comes down to the little ways we can every day make awareness to tending to our vessel. And I know at least for Pisces, like I love taking a good bath. I love Mm. having even a good foot bath, like having a little basin of water, throwing some Jupiter herbs in is one of the best things I can do. Uh, Like that grounds me so much. I mean, sometimes people don't see it, but if I'm especially in like a Zoom meeting, my, I might <laughs> I might have some some water and some herbs around my feet. I won't lie. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Take I advantage mean, of like only showing half your body, you know, <laughs> in the best way. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's really great because obviously, you know, Pisces rules the feet. Right. Um, the melothesia. So it's it's really it's not just like grounding. Right. Because it's it is water, but like it's putting them in their own element in a way mm-hmm. that I just find is really very and it's sort of equivalent of grounding in a way it's like yes of course you know i love to walk on grass but getting myself in water is always helpful and also Mm -hmm. like the beach you know in salt water if you have access to a lake or a larger body of water just to sit and look or to dip in um i think connecting with earth's natural waters is a great way of course as well to connect for a pisces moon so yeah i mean we have lots of different healing practices um, that encourage this this kind of transformation. And I think the bottom line as we're all moving through that is it won't even be consistent, you know, what we do mm. over these few years. It's like our practices change and we want to put strictures and limitations and structure into our spiritual life. And again, <laughs> it's it's like not linear. And, you know, some practices are easier to to maintain over a course of time than others. Um, but like we can't be hard on ourselves if if we're deciding something isn't jiving or if we're just not getting the energy to do it. Sometimes that's an equal message that we can try something else. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't have to look like a conventional practice. It can it can change seven days a week, but then reset and, and you can come back. You know, it's like 
the mutability, it's just the same idea that as long as there's the effort over time, mm. we're going to get the results we're looking for. Mm. Nice. Yeah. And I think the other thing I was going to mention was, you know, you're just talking about growing up and uh, challenges with like identity and um, not challenges with identity, but kind of navigating the world with particular identities. And I guess I'll kind of say that I, I can relate to just being different. And like, I was even talking to my, my partner about this yesterday. Um, You know, she was reminding me about like the, the place that I grew up in. I grew up in this working class neighborhood in New York city where it was like, you know, very Irish Catholic, like a lot of people, you know, very working class. It was like really kind of fixed um, ideas about masculinity and uh, about sexuality. And I was pretty good at like fitting in enough, you know what I mean? To like be safe, to like maintain some safety. I think people always knew it was like a little bit different, Um, but I was able to kind of adapt enough to stay safe or like feel safe. And um, I don't know if that's like, just like mutable, mutable life or what, like I I have a lot of um, very few fixed planets in my chart, Uh, a bunch of kind of angular mutable planets and then like a capstellium and uh, you know, some, some cardinal stuff going on, but I, I don't know if there's any like astrologically, if you have any kind of astrological kind of explanation for that, or if you, if you relate to kind of like that adaptability, um, as a way for survival. And it's interesting thinking back to Pisces, like I, my, my fourth whole sign house is Pisces. And so there's this kind of hearkening back to where I grew up and home and stuff like that. And, uh, with the myth of Pisces, we were talking about this necessity for uh, sacrifice, this necessity for like destruction for survival. And Mm -hmm. so I'm very much just reminded, reminded of that again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think this brings us back to how sometimes in astrology, some of the most clear symbolism really comes up with the most simple principles. Mm. And one thing that you'll never miss out on in a chart is that every mutable sign will indicate two of that mm-hmm. thing or a double dual nature to it. So for myself, like my fourth house is Virgo. Um, so, you know, my parents were divorced. I grew up living mm-hmm. and going back and forth between two houses. Um, and I mean, Virgo is also a mutable earth. And I grew up on like a barrier island off the coast, mm-hmm. which is like they're not fixed, like it's moving. Mm-hmm. like to storms like houses often are can fall into the water there so it was it was literally you know mutable earth and again like there's always very literal symbolism sometimes um but yeah like i think when we try to just find that like at least in the context of these um modalities you know this sacred trinity that's somehow in everything everything's going to show one or the other or the other nature, whether mm-hmm. it's to to be reborn, to endure, or to die and be reborn. Um, some, it, everything has to embody that somehow. And so for us mutables, we're on that magical spectrum of the death and rebirth phase. You know, we're the transfer. 
of nature from one thing to get it ready for the next cycle. And in a way, it almost feels um, like balsamic in a sense, because we are the end of each season. You know, we are about the slow um, destruction in a way that just prepares for that refinement as uh, birth in a new form. So, yeah, I think uh, in terms of just these, this talk about different modalities, there's a different lesson with each one. And mm -hmm. for Pisces being that mutable water, um, I think it's that it's the, it's the emotional death, you mm -hmm. know, it's the, the, it's the rebirth of the inner world in a sense and how on an emotional level and a relational level connecting to other people. Um, there's always that desire to absorb ourselves into other people's lives or into our own fantasies. And yet at the same time, what we idealize in one second is going to change in another. Mm. And so I think for Saturn and Pisces too, that archetype that does exist within the sign as we've talked you know, a decent amount about that first decan, um, something I imagine over the next few years is how can we at least attempt to put a container in a healthy way on allowing the flexibility, allowing the rebirth, allowing the, you know, the death process within ourselves, but in right in a Saturnian way. So in a way that we're not continually letting ourselves be reborn mm -hmm. and not continually letting ourselves shift too much in a way that becomes um, unhealthy, right? There's an amount to which, uh, yeah, things have to stay fixed for some period of time or else they don't become. Mm -hmm. There's an mm -hmm. unbecoming in that chaotic way of being. Do you see like the moon as mind in some way? Or do you see stillness of the mind? Like, you know, we can relate Mercury to like the nervous system, for example. And so like there's becomes yeah. this relationship between Mercury perhaps and and the moon, like this, the, the relaxation, the stillness, enabling some type of intuitive sense to come forth. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. Um, I don't know if we have... I almost want to say it's maybe a solar thing mm. like to just absorb constancy and illumination mm. because I would say that, yes, the the moon is like similar to the mind in the way that, yeah, it's so fluctuating and so inconstant and so all over the place and scattered that as the moon, you know, kind of tries to liken the image of the sun by reflecting her light over time, we can get our mind to polish it enough to maybe mm. one day become a reflection of that immortal or constant solar impulse. Um, yeah. So I think perhaps there's that relationship between the moon and the sun that just reflects that slow polishing of our mind to mm. as, as still or calm as we see most fit to navigate our lives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm just kind of thinking about this in the moment. And I also want to say, like, I just want to give some credit to um, Diana Rose Harper in her recent, like, by Jove offering. She talked a lot about Jupiter and Mercury in relation to the nervous system. And I'm in... Mm -hmm. Ari Felix's like world building class uh, or world building school right now. And they're talking about that a lot as well. Just kind of like what the planets mean and they're relating Mercury to like the nervous system as well. And so just want to preface that, like I'm kind of 
have been thinking about that lately in relation to those two two offerings. But you know, it's like Mercury's relationship to the Sun. Mercury is so tethered to the Sun, and um, if we can think about Mercury as the nervous system, or perhaps like the mental chatter that we have, mm. and think about the Sun as like you know, in meditation, uh, we can think about consciousness and we can think about like the watcher. And, and I'm thinking right now of the sun as like that element of, is that a mental faculty? Is consciousness something that's separate uh, from the mental? I don't know, but mm. there is a place that can be gone to in meditation where you are like watching the mental chatter, where like the constancy of the sun can observe kind of the fluctuation of mercury mm-hmm. um and of course like the moon is reflecting the light of the sun revolving around the earth changing its shape uh and speed and size in relation to in relation to the sun and so i do feel like there is this i mean everything is kind of interconnected but there's this interconnection to all these things yeah and i think our mind you know maybe the whole sphere of our inner experience it's just going to be reflected perfectly through the planetary spheres, like you were just about to say, like, or mm. as you were saying, like, we have this first layer of the moon, which is this very chattery and constant all over the place layer, that then the next step up, right, Mercury, we have this like logic filter that wants to come in and think about what this random thought that came into your mind was, and, you know, go off of that, and then it trickles back to the moon, which cycles around again, and then maybe Mercury tricks in again. And then when we do have something that like we think about, like, when we have a, a thought about our thought, then we get to that Venus level, which is like that level of desire, which mm-hmm. is the block before we get to the the sun, right? Because we have to break, you know, it's like all like Buddhas in the Buddhist tradition, right? Like Dukkha is like suffering mm-hmm. and it's all suffering comes from our attachments to, um, you know, the physical world and sensual pleasure and desire. And so again, I think this might connect to Pisces, like being that exaltation principle of Venus, like that's the layer that's the hardest to break is becoming fully non-attached, mm-hmm. um, which at the same time, you know, back to Valens, what he was saying about not being attached to hope, not being attached to an expectation of what could happen, because that that attachment is what, you know, blocks you by causing the suffering, you know, mm-hmm. or that causes the separation mentality and that removes us from getting to that solar layer, which is that, that you know, midpoint balanced nice and smooth you know calm level uh, interpretively i don't even know where to move up from there probably yeah. it's more beyond than we can understand but mm-hmm. somehow mm-hmm. maybe that might play into what we were talking about i guess yeah absolutely i think before we jump into the relationship of your moon and your sun um i know that you work a lot with uh dodecatomoria and monomoria um, and I don't know if you want to take a moment to talk about how those things relate to your moon placement or if the, if you use those in relation to planets as well as kind of like your ascendant or different points in the chart. But I'd love to hear your take on that if you would like to share. Um, yeah, sure, I guess. So like you mentioned, um, I'm a huge nerd for uh, all these kind of like subdivisions of the signs, you know, the harmonics, it's studied, or, you know, been extensively analyzed by, you know, in Jyotish, by Vedic scholars as the Vargas, the divisional charts um, in vibrational astrology, like kind of pioneered by David Cochran, um, you know, by looking at all these different um, you know, vibrations 
or essentially harmonic levels in the chart. Um, but yeah, there's a few that I definitely really am interested in. Like you mentioned, the 12th harmonic or the Greek word was dodecatemoria. If you ever see that kind of long word, it's, I just call them 12 parts because it's easy to, that's literally what the word means basically. Um, and yeah, it's basically, as I mentioned earlier, how we kind of break each sign into its perspective of all the other 12, you know, from its unique position. So when we take a whole sign of 30 degrees and we cut it into 12 little parts, we actually just fill in a whole micro zodiac mm. along the way. And the key is that we just start that enumeration from the sign you're in. So the first sliver or first 12 part of Taurus is ruled by Taurus and then Gemini all the way to Aries, which will be the last one. Um, so if you're familiar somehow with like, you know, how you number houses for any possible ascendant, it's the same idea. Just mm -hmm. we're kind of encapsulating all of that into one little sign. And so it's cool because it does like two things. Like in one way, you can look at the 12th part of any placement and somehow that's going to, you know, show a sub influence of how it expresses itself. So like, for instance, my moon in Pisces is in the 12th part of Libra. Mm -hmm. um, so there's more sympathy because it's ruled by Venus. There's more another sympathy because it's like, um, you know, it's a sign of equal light. They share the same seasonal hours. So there's like another connection there. Um, but I also have other, like, I have like three other planets in Libra already. So it's kind of hard to, it, it's adding its influence essentially into my, my fifth house is right. how that's working. Um, but so that, and that's the other piece is that, so you kind of have a planet that's like, okay, Pisces Libra is like how that planet might express itself or ascendant. Mm -hmm. Um, but then at the same time, what it does is it, it also puts its influence there. It puts its virtue there. So that moon then participates as well in the activity of the fifth house. Um, but then also thinking about, well, from Pisces, like where does Libra fall? It's the eighth sign counting around. So then it's like there's another layer there too. So, and that's where, the, you know, these things can get pretty nuanced and it's, it's right. sort of a layer you kind of, you know, kind of sprinkle on top the base foundation of the nativity. Um, but it's really, it's really interesting because it's a really beautiful, like fractal of the Zodiac that's just showing all these little hidden connections. Um, like even Firmicus like writes when he writes about them, like, so some astrologers, you know, swear by these that you can reveal all the substance of a nativity from the 12 parts. And I totally believe that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. Um, yeah. Uh, Angelus and on the Capricorn moon episode referenced, uh working with you um and your influence on her in relation to the dodec de moria and um that was a really cool conversation and the term that she used was like a window into another place which i thought was really cool um and again just want to kind of plug your uh, kazimi khan lecture uh where you kind of talked for talked ex extensively on the dodec de moria and i thought that that was really uh, informative and so just wanted to mention that as well. And I'll link it in the show notes. If there's not something that you additional kind of resource that you have uh, for people in, re in relation to that. Um, well, cool. Yeah, no, thank you for, um, yeah. Referencing that it's, yeah. If anyone's curious to read it or learn more about that, there's um, that talk that I did. Um, I guess for um, like in the tradition um, who you can read from um, Rotorius talks a good amount about them and how you delineate them. It gives like nice examples. Um, let's see. 
I'm going to take a moment right here to plug your podcast because the Mercurianian podcast, because you and Stella are doing like a live reading of Rotorius now, aren't you? Yes. So Wednesday mornings currently, it might change soon, but as of right now, Wednesday mornings, um, yeah, we're live streaming a reading of Rotorius and yeah, you can comment and chat with questions if you have, if you catch us live, but yeah, we are, we're reading Rotorius, which is cool. Yeah. Super um, cool. Yeah. Um, so thank you. Um, but yeah, we're, or we're, um, uh, also you can definitely check out Paulus who gives some good delineations for them. He uses a slightly different calculation, but it's mm-hmm. the same idea. I'm not going to explain that fully. I explain it in the talk if you're curious. Um, yeah. uh, then there's also like Firmicus who talks about them. Um, a lot of great medieval uh, authors who reference them. Like Abu Mashar talks extensively about them and in timing, um, Abu um, Ali Al-Kayat references them. Uh, Mashallah talks a lot about them. So yeah, there's mm-hmm. lots of there's resources out there. If you if you dig enough, they're they're hidden in the in the gems of the authors that we have surviving. Yeah, and I'll also say before we move on is uh, Ali Lomi has great uh, translations of mm-hmm. the Dodecatomoria of the Ascendant uh, mm-hmm. on his Patreon. I'm always trying to get people to join Ali's Patreon. It's like the I feel like the best money I've spent uh in terms of like astrology learning because yeah so he's doing things. awesome work on there yeah yeah, yeah so I'll, I'll put that in the show notes as well um cool. i feel bad we're like loading up all your <laughs> participants with like a summer reading list i feel like jesus <laughs> that's okay i feel like i want to i want to support yeah. people yeah, on this no, podcast no, and like offer offer resources you know because yeah. like i love resources personally yeah um yeah so what's the relationship of your moon to your sun and what does what role does lunar phase play in in that experience yeah um also one thing i want to say just to kind of be clear i mean this will mm -hmm. be in the title but you have a night chart Mm -hmm. the moon is uh the moon is the only planet in the top half of the chart is that correct yeah, that's correct. And she, she's like separating from Venus and moving towards Saturn, correct? Yeah. So can't see her other sect mate, um, Mars, but as you said, with Dodecademoria, she kind of moves into that house. Um, but I, yeah, I just want to get like, give people a sense of like, you have a night chart, um, but it's interesting like not to get too off topic, but I I think it's really interesting uh, when people have a chart and I speak from my own experience where it's like a certain sect. So night sect, but like, I also have a very kind of like strong Saturn and I feel like, you know, you also perhaps have a kind of very angular Saturn. And so I feel like that can add real nuance to how the native's life can go. And it's like, the malefic out of sect isn't necessarily always bad, but can manifest in some challenging ways. And it's like, all of it's to say, I think that it's like, again, it's a contextual thing and it's, um, yeah. I mean, we have all those interpretive distinctions to give that baseline. And then there are just so many multifold ways that all of those criteria can be slightly modified or completely mitigated and completely reversed from mm-hmm. whatever the canonical, 
uh, definition or expectation of any planet's role is. So, yeah, and that's why, you know, judging a chart is, it's an art. You know, right. Lily always refers to, you know, the judgment of the chart being done by the artist, right? And it really is that synthetic um, process of combining, you know, the intellect of Mercury with maybe the, uh, I guess, prophetic or expansive awareness of synthesis, like from Jupiter. Mm. Um, so there is that combination there, of course. So my moon, um, my sun's in Libra. So I have a waxing gibbous moon. And um, yeah, I think uh, I think of Valance, he has a few keywords for like a lot of the phases. And for this one, like he mentions, um, like an interest in travel, which I think is definitely true for me. Like ever since I was young, like I've always wanted to travel abroad and go to school abroad. And um, yeah, I've like saved up my money, like all my money to pay for trips so it's like in a huge way in my life like getting out into the world is like always just been one of the main things i've always wanted to do um and so like i also first got to uh, i got to visit italy my sister was like studying abroad there and it was that year that my mom and i visiting her there we saw the Colosseum and like decided we want to visit all the seven wonders of the ancient world um, or not wow. of the ancient world, the seven wonders of the world now. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we saw the Colosseum and then we also got to visit Petra in Jordan, like in March of 2020. <laughs> um, so that was like a very last minute um, trip there, or at least it was right before everything changed. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so I've always been really inspired to travel and, you know, maybe it could just be a Jupiter thing too, but yeah, he mentions travel and I believe he also just talks about like generally looking to like put yourself out there, which kind of makes sense with like Rudyar, um, who talks extensively his, you know, classic, the lunation cycle, um, is a text I'd recommend to everyone. Um, where he talks about like the eight lunation types and the eight phases and, um, yeah, for like waxing gibbous, he talks about like people who really just long to contribute something to society mm -hmm. and people who are kind of always trying to like synthesize concepts and like ask why um, and like get a bigger picture under uh, understanding of something. Um, and also just like people who really want to motivate themselves to like, yeah, I guess like, I think he talks about just like fulfilling their potential, which I mean, I guess, you know, as that phase is like just before, full like it makes sense that there is that search to you know long for completion and i think as well like in um dimitra george's workshop on the balsamic moon phase that i went to last spring she was also talking about with this phase like um that there's almost like a desire for perfection because mm -hmm. it's like so close to striving for wholeness that um there can also be like that desire for control or um yeah organization through perf perfection of things um so yeah i feel like those are all different ways that that um has played into has played into yeah my life and yeah along just the lines of some of the things that valens and rajar wrote about it at least yeah that's cool I, I think especially the part about travel is really interesting but because it reminds me that 
Um, and I have a the, kind of the opposite of this. Your your midheaven, your MC, like is in your ninth rather than your tenth. Mine's in my eleventh mm. oh, okay, rather yeah. than my tenth. Um, and people can talk about like what that means for the eleventh or the ninth house, but um, people don't necessarily talk about like what the MC not being in the tenth means for the tenth house. And I'm curious if like well, that's a big question nowadays. You got to be careful with that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're asking the hard we're asking the hard questions here, so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know that there's a lot of conversation about about this, but um, yeah, I mean, I've yeah. talked about using whole sign houses uh, the whole time I've had this podcast, so yeah, people are going to come um, for me now. Well, I yeah, I mean, okay, well, if we're getting into it, I'll just say quickly that um, in terms of houses, I'm definitely a proponent of using both a whole sign and quadrant house system. Um, cool. I think that's what's often been advised by many astrologers in the tradition and often as I've experienced it um, gives the best results because just like as astrologers we're always weighing multiple judgments about you know planets speed and visibility and dignity and aspects um, the same multiplicity is true for the houses so mm -hmm. there's a necessity of understanding both perspectives with them um, and a blending of things right like astrologers they're always talking about in these texts like you know blend the significations or if it's a year where you have a benefic and a malefic as chronocrators or as the rulers of the year that you know it's mixed results right so it's the same thing here where we always want like a definitive um answer for things with astrology and that's never what she gives us it's always a paradoxical binary somehow and so it's the same thing here so i um i had a really good discussion with liam suffice about this last night actually we were talking about how do we reconcile using both mm -hmm. and we were really just talking about that all this discussion and debate and chaos is only coming as a result of the unclarity, I guess you could say, or um, ambiguity around how we actually look at a chart when we display it. Mm. It's not about the terminology. It's about how when you draw up a chart, what are you actually looking at and paying attention to? Um, and ultimately, um, you know, there's sort of this consideration that well you know we can look at whole sign houses um, as fundamentally giving a topical structure for um, things we know that like houses derive their meanings from the 12 whole sign aspect or the just the the whole sign aspects that are sort of made and um, we were talking a lot about how like mundane aspects like yeah even though by you know by degree in the zodiac in the quadrant house system like it doesn't retain that um you know exact sextile that like the 11th house should make to the ascendant but like it, in a mundane aspect like when you're just standing outside like the midheavens always square to the ascendant mm -hmm. like the ninth house cusp is always trying to the ascendant like these are fixed segments of the sky that are equal it's just that the zodiac is oblique and so some areas there's more stretch of band of the stars than in others and so it's really just that these whole sign houses can give us light on the topical information that's there where mm -hmm. we find to overlay the house cusps as sensitive degrees that also play into planets emphasizing um the house topic house topics as they get closer to the cusp mm -hmm. um which we're also talking about like that word comes from a latin word that means like a sharp point because Edge, it's not yeah. it's not a boundary right it's not like a you jump over and it switches it's like there's an emphasis there mm -hmm. um, so yeah 
this is a long winded discussion. It's we're off topic, but that's um yeah, just because okay. it came up. That's <laughs> kind of my thoughts on it currently. Okay, and so um, one question, just to kind of get clear on on what you mean, even if the MC is in the eleventh or the tenth or, or the ninth, you think the tenth is still kind of like praxis work in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so then that MC degree becomes a, um, what was the word I just used? Um, Edge. Uh, you used a different word, but cusp okay. means. Right. But like a, a sensitive point. So right. it becomes a sensitive point pertaining to rank and work and praxis that imports the significations into another whole sign place. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. Cool. And that's not, that's, that's, you know, Valence talks about that, like when the MC, like he gives an example of like a, a Gemini rising chart with the midheaven in the ninth. And he says, oh, in this perfection, like when you do the transmissions by nine, which just means when you do any kind of rotation by nine, the ascendant moves to Aquarius, but 10th house things happen, midheaven things happen because it's by degree there. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me kind of of how you can have uh, planets ruling signs, but then you also have lots, which can be about that topic as well. And a different planet can rule that potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and how you can just kind of get additional information and, and meaning from that. Yeah. Um, just curious, uh, what quadrant house system do you, do you use when you're looking, looking at like, uh, charts? Yeah. I use Alcabitius or the standard system. It's okay. kind of called because it was sort of used even before Alcabisi, but it just has to do with the way it's mathematically like derived is why someone might call it that. But people argue, you know, there are some reasons that like it's not as mathematically precise as other systems, um, like Regimentanus or Placidus. Um, but yeah, it's just the system I've kind of just decided to work with and always get great results with. So yeah. Awesome. But I won't say that's going to be more right than any, anyone else's quadrant division that's different than that. So Yeah, and I mean, as I said, I'm like a new student. I, I'm not arguing for anything. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Like, yeah. I want to hear about people's experiences. And I mm. I know that, um, and, and like, yeah, like what works, works for people. If yeah. people use, you know, I, for horary, I use whole sign houses. Mm-hmm. If someone uses Reggio Montanus, I'm not going to say that they're wrong or right. Like Lily has a whole, you know, spent his whole uh, career using Reggio Montanus for horary, as far as I understand. Um, So who am I to say what people can or cannot do? It's like, from my perspective, it's just kind of like live and let live. Let's just all. Yeah, exactly. Kind of do our thing. Yeah. And it's, yeah, same, same perspective here. That's just like, I use it and it clicks for me. And and honestly, I mean, while we're sort of talking about this, and this is also a Piscean thing, so maybe there's some cool um, uh, valid or validity to this um, digression. But like Rick Levine was talking about how this astrology is so you know beyond our comprehension that in some cases, so he was referencing Sabian symbols, which is this technique of like symbolic images, archetypal images being associated with all of the degrees of the zodiac. And he was describing how there was this astrologer, and I don't remember her name, um, and that he could never get them to work or make sense to him or resonate with him. But then she'd walk into the room, you know, and they would start coming alive left and right. And he, he you know, there's no way he could explain that. And so it's this really beautiful way that it's so paradoxical, but each of us is going to carry our own 
beautiful, unique way of looking at a chart and resonating with different techniques. And it's like we each have our own diamond who's like literally just feeding us our, you know, unique way of looking at things. Mm. Um, and it's going to be different from other people's. And we just have to reconcile that, yes, it's not quite like, it's not quite like how we just have different perspectives about like objective things in the world. Because with astrology, it's really difficult to be objective about quite anything. And so that's why d discussions like this are so difficult because we can have like worldly affairs that we can all be very divisive about, but like try to come to consensus on. But with this, we're going to be divided and still not get a, a consensus. So right. Everyone just needs to pump the brakes and <laughs> just talk to their diamond and just do what you need to do. <laughs> like, Kind yeah. of, I, I mean, taking a horary course as like one of the first courses I took, I'm sorry that we're like going off on this digression. It's but all good. It's meant to happen because we're doing it. So keep going. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, though I took Chris Brennan's horary course and like mm. he starts with a lot of history and then goes into like kind of philosophical grounding. And one of the things that we talked about was um, the moment of astrology. The oh, book is yes. called mm -hmm. and basically just like making this argument that uh astrology is inherently a divinatory practice right. and like that is right. i think no more evident in horary where you take a random chart of a moment that you understand a question and somehow the question and the whole situation of this person you don't know is yeah. rooted in this chart and then like you can take a someone can ask you another question five minutes later, you have the same rising sign. Mm. And it's because they're asking about different topics, like yeah, a whole nother part of the sky and part of the chart is like lit up and can right. tell that story. And it's kind of like, okay, well that doesn't like, how, <laughs> how does that happen? I, I yeah. don't understand. Like, and because, yeah. because it's like, we, we can, there is this element of astrology where it's like, okay, till the end of time, we know the cycle of Saturn. We can say where all these planets will be, but how that manifests is quite a different story and is a lot more difficult to explain. Yeah. And, and that's such a beautiful point because it brings us right back to this discussion of Pisces as an encounter with the divine unknowable, right? Mm. And sometimes, or not sometimes, one time I was talking with a friend about this first decan of Saturn in Pisces, which we're all going to be feeling very strongly very soon, um, almost as like an archetype for the demiurge. And this will bring us back to the, the kind of Neoplatonic stuff I was talking about earlier, where it's like, yeah, we have like this infinite mind of God that exists beyond everything, beyond time and space that is just unknowable and incomprehensible. But like there's this piece of that that decided to assemble intellect to mm. become the architect of the material cosmos. And it's sort of a sub ruler or maybe it's more precise to say, uh, I guess, a, a, a piece you know, of the aspect of that infinite um, monad that's mm -hmm. beyond it. And so with this like Saturn and Pisces talk, it's like there's putting form to the unknowable, which is the most impossible task, right? Right. How do you Saturnize Pisces, mm -hmm. right? You, you can't. And so we'll attempt to do that and we'll get, you know, we'll face lots of um, obstacles societally, socially over the next three years as we encounter that obstacle. Um, but the most important thing we can do is just submit 
and that takes us back to that moment where we were like okay jesus take the wheel right. you know it's like that same power that we're realizing is right there is also there because we're not supposed to understand it and that's just the hardest lesson for us and then it's like well okay right after we get that saturn deck and it goes to jupiter and that's like the i release all control i'm just a person in like a little body who's still a part of divinity but i'm just a little piece of the gear for right now mm -hmm. and that's all i need to worry about so a lot um, to think about with yeah that. yeah all right let's move on to talk about your own jupiter placement in your chart um and how you experience that planet how that how jupiter resources your moon or maybe some challenges around that in addition like let's just talk about um any aspects that your moon makes in your chart as well that you think would be important to discuss um yeah so i think this will be maybe an interesting part of our discussion too because like having the moon as my sect light um or also known as like a well they're not the same thing but often we would like the sect light to also take on the role of like what's called the controller or the predominator, awesome. which is essentially... I love that this is where the conversation's going. Yeah. So, you know, this is the planet in our chart that's essentially responsible for holding and being the source of our vital life energy. Right. And, you know, the luminaries as the movers and creators and, you know, brightest lights in the sky are archetypally the planets we look for that to be. And so, you know, in a night chart, we look at the moon. In a day chart, we look at the sun. And it gets, you know, more complex than this. But the idea is that this planet, you know, in your chart, the ruler of that planet becomes responsible for molding and shaping and fitting that life force into a body, into a vessel. So, like, your moon as it is, it's just that lunar essence. And then the sign it falls into it automatically has a planet that has to rule it or own it or shape it and mold it and control it. Mm -hmm. And so that's the idea of the master, really. Um, and so the master of the nativity is just going to be the ruler of that planet that is deemed most fit to, you know, be angular and hold lots of life force, you know, that juicy. <laughs> and the domicile of... ruler, you would say, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I should have clarified that. No most. Worries. Well, there's different takes on that. Yeah. Valens, for Valens, it was only the bound lord. Um, but, you mm -hmm. know, there's different approaches and none of them are necessarily right. But the idea is this ruler of the life force has to mold it and shape it into a container and encapsulate it. And that defines your character and your body and your appearance and how you show up embodied with that life force. And so that life force or that predominator is going to kind of show that internal world of like what's stirring your soul. And then that masters how you respond to putting that soul energy in action through your character and your interests. And mm -hmm. so for me, like, so Jupiter being the ruler, um, you know, he's responsible for somehow putting that energy up there into motion and putting it into um, a vessel. And so, yeah, I mean, like I have Jupiter and Leo, so they aren't connected by whole sign. Mm -hmm. um, and... The moon actually doesn't witness any of its rulers. Um, right. But um, essentially, it's Jupiter is still the driving impulse that is um, kind of hoping to support it. Um, also, let me clarify, because Venus does witness the moon, um, but it's separating. It's a separating aspect, which essentially right. means it's like a, um, yeah, the, the influence is getting weaker. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
the the point is just that essentially whatever aspects you can get to that planet that's holding the life force the one that's most closely aspecting it like and ideally ruling it is somehow responsible for that molding that energy so all us pisces moons um if it's the sect light especially become very jupiterian you know mm-hmm. that's that becomes the planet that's responsible for kind of delineating who we are and defining mm-hmm. our mission as we like put it out into the world for other people to see and how we showcase ourselves so contrasting that you know from like a sag moon you know who still experiences um that predominantly um or the you know the rulership of jupiter at its heart um you know being a water sign as opposed to the fire like pisces sect light is really i guess encouraged to tap into how that jupiter can expand the emotional life or the um spiritual life mm-hmm. um which at the same time sagittarius does by gaining that like presence of the moment and the fire of action and that that's an equally like enlightening you know approach mm-hmm. it's just two different ways that like one could kind of maybe access that jupiter is either through like that internal you know exploration of pisces versus like the climbing the mountain you know or something i that, think for me personally with uh the sag moon like yeah. there is this emphasis on truth mm. uh, rather than perhaps spiritual experience like the water of the mm. spirit there's an, this emphasis on like the fire of truth um which is also i feel like very important in the spiritual life yeah. as well it's just a different different emphasis or different flavor yeah yeah absolutely i also wanted to say too that um in terms of this uh in terms of this like master of the nativity um idea uh Demetria george talks about this in volume two of her book and kind of goes through the very kind of not contentious but it, it is very like not there is not consensus on like how this technique is done. I think mm-hmm. Chris does a video on it as well, where he kind of like goes through how, how it's delineated. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure who puts forth the, the nautical metaphor, but I think you, you talked about yesterday on Twitter with the, the engineer of the nativity, like the Lord of the prenatal, uh, lunation, um, Schmidt talks about this, uh, you know, nautical metaphor. And he would say that the master of the nativity, if I understand correctly, is like the owner of the ship. Whereas like Chris thinks that the master of the nativity is the steersman and the Lord of the nativity is the owner. So it's just like, yeah. even in modern times thinking people or contemporary astrologers who think about this technique, it's like, there's not a lot of agreement on mm-hmm. like how these planets are delineated or what have right. you. Yeah. And the problem comes from, so with this nautical metaphor, the first the first where the first place this shows up is through the um the greek word for the ascendant which they use the word oyax which means the helm like mm. the helm of the ship where it's steered from um and that was very common a lot of authors kind of use that terminology to talk about the ascendant like where we're you know steering our life from but then when we get to porphyry he introduces this chapter on the master and the lord and he makes this sort of slight offhanded comment that he doesn't really revisit where he talks about, he says, like, just as the um, Kubernetes and the Naukleros of a ship, um, you know, guide its sails, you know, so it's like essentially to the effect of like, so do these like planets are 
kind of work like different officers on the ship mm-hmm. and the and problem what are those is, what do those words mean right so yeah that's and that's the whole problem is yeah. <laughs> there's a lack of distinction not about their definitions they're defined like definitively two different things the problem is he wasn't very clear about which one he was assigning mm-hmm. um the role to so we have the um we have the kubernetes which is like the captain um and the kubernetes is like kind of at the you know full command of the ship right and then we have the Nelcleros, who is sort of like the guy who owns it and pays for the ship to run and is maybe you know sitting back on land and just kind of charting the 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 course of the journey through his like funds yeah and that idea kind of brings us to like the master you know if it is that um now Kleros becoming this somehow figure in our chart that describes essentially what our life journey is charted for. Mm-hmm. So our master tells us like what kind of journey we're headed on. You know, are we just kind of sailing around the harbor, going port to port? Are we crossing the Atlantic? You know, like that's the kind of scope or perspective that the master could give us if you choose mm-hmm. to assign it this way, which I personally do. Mm-hmm. Uh, contrast with with the now sorry with the kubernetes the captain who would be a different planet that porphyry is unique to um, describing this role called the lord or the curios which sort of then becomes described as the planet that's most in charge um, Mm -hmm. that has the best amount of capabilities and most amount of rulerships in the chart to bring you to uh, port or bring you where you're trying to get with the most amount of ease and happiness and success and beneficence um, that at the same time could lead to a spiritual um, insight by realizing your life journey through yeah, ease and not going against the flow of the currents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to so, go back to theurgy, like the whole point I think of identifying these planets is to like develop a really like potentially develop a relationship with the Lord so that you can intervene, like have them intervene on your behalf to like change your fate. Or that's kind of mm-hmm. some of what people have asserted and right. it's like whether that can actually happen is up for debate but right yeah i mean it's interesting because it ties into relational astrology which is very like uh, you know a big part of the conversation around astrology right now and i do think that it plays in to this idea of theurgy and this idea of like the lord of the nativity um because i think personally it's like if we have a relationship with a spirit or a planet, like even if that is devotional and we are doing it for them, there is an element of like, I think internal change that we are hoping for. Yeah. Um, with that relationship. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. I mean, this is, um, this is again, an age old discussion. And that brings us back to that letter to Anibo that Porphyry wrote. So this guy talked about this master and the Lord as being these guys that can, give us like insight on our destiny um and shape our future um while at the same time in this letter questioning well and and chris talks about this in this episode mm-hmm. that's on youtube you can watch it um on the master of the nativity where there's this just this discrepancy because he's saying well why should we contact these guys if they're meant to allot our fate which is what we can't control right what's mm-hmm. what's predestined or predetermined um, and so like to what extent would that entity then want to listen to us who yeah. is the incarnated soul that chose this so why mm-hmm. would you want to differ from that plan yeah um, 
and that's you know once again we can't Saturn and Pisces there's we can't articulate the the ineffable yeah and maybe this is an oversimplification or a different thing from what that technique is talking about but my own experience of like developing relationships with planets has been Mm -hmm. that I've thought about them differently and experienced them differently which means that I live my life differently so there is the way if we have a different relationship to things we act in a different way and that means our life is different so Mm -hmm. yeah And, and that's beautiful because that's really what it's all about and that again brings us back to Saturn and Pisces that sacrificial offering that we have to make to then get that next decade the Jupiter in Pisces right so like it has to be selfless it has to be genuine it has to be concerned with offering up the lower self to merge with the higher mm. and submitting and not necessarily destroying but humbling the ego to step down and be aware of its own place in the chain of the cosmos and be willing to yeah be give benevolence um benevolent um what's the word i guess you know goodwill Mm -hmm. right it's like it's not necessarily even expecting anything in return but like venus i'm gonna pray to you and buy a rose for you and give this to the flower i gave to you and maybe bake a cake and here's a cupcake right it's like all these little like things we can just do as um kind offerings like we would to any friend yeah it's the same thing like you were talking about just doing it with a spiritual entity Mm -hmm. Um, and the way that changes us it's yeah. real yeah any other aspects you mean that you want to kind of talk about that you think would be important to discuss yeah i mean my moon is um applying to a square with saturn um which is sort of like a maltreatment for her um which is just a hellenistic aspect term for you know it's a kind of obstacle that that planet has to face mm-hmm. And so for, you know, in regards to all of these lunar affairs that we've been chatting about, the Piscean um, desire for perfection or peace, um, getting very interrupted mm-hmm. by a, um, <laughs> a very airy and dry um, Saturn. Um, and I guess I kind of think about like in my childhood even, um, like I was always very fascinated with like utopianism and mm. dystopianism. Even like I, I was reading like Brave New World and like 1984 and Animal Farm, like all these really kind of um, these books about structures and how we can try to compartmentalize society and how that just doesn't doesn't work. Um, and like even like contemporary books like like The Hunger Games and like Divergent. Like I was really interested in like how you know, dystopia manifests as like the corruption of a pure thing. Mm. And, you know, it makes me even think about like, like Plato, who, you know, references, uh, you know, talks about the forms, right? Like these perfect archetypal objects that exist beyond the material world, right? It's like this problem of like, okay, well, all these things that share this thing in common, like, does that thing that they have in common exist beyond them, right? And that's that idea of, some archetypal form that is supreme to that. And I feel like through, um, it's like the mythexis is this trickle down of divine order from that form. 
that mm. perfect chain of sympathy of the cosmos moving to replicate whatever that divine form is and then like the like kind of contrast to that is like the mimesis which is like how we try to replicate or fail to replicate some divine archetype or form and so i feel like for me in my life um i've struggled so much with self-perception and mm. perfectionism you know having the out of sex planet in the first like you mentioned um you know, it can be challenging in some ways because it encounters, it, it forces us to encounter the parts of ourselves that we find most dejected or that we find most mm. obstructive to, um, you know, our, our path being like so present in front of us. And like, that can be, you know, challenging very viscerally um, because especially just talking about like Saturn, like we take on a lot of weight and hold a lot of it because of that. And so mm. like, for myself, like, I, I know I hold a lot of that trauma like in my body because mm. my mood's so affected by that Saturn that, you know, once again, just like having the time to do, you know, some like a forward fold and just let my hips open up, mm. right? Like whatever, whatever that is, you know, it's not always a full, you know, two hour long yoga practice, but those ways that my body helps me open up what longs to just get stuck. Yeah. Um, with that Saturnian energy presenting a, you know, a blockage that can really inhibit the creative flow that mm -hmm. like that Pisces energy wants to give. Um, and confronting that just comes along with, you know, facing, facing everything that's non, not in accordance with that um, myth excess, like everything that feels uncomfortable because it's like a, a fake replication of the ideal, mm -hmm. right? It's like how that feels and it's yeah it's it can be paralyzing sometimes but having to work through that i mean that's just life's work right you know moving right. through moving through the things that make us uncomfortable mm. but that's just tough when it's in your first because you feel responsible for it and yeah. sometimes you are i have been <laughs> yeah several times of course um but it's like there's a way where that can become detrimental to like always be holding things on yourself you know, being yeah. so Saturnian about everything and always worrying about time and never having enough time or always running late. You know, it's like mm -hmm. all those Saturnian um, things that just trickle the mind into finding a way to critique itself constantly um, yeah. and letting go of those critiques because they're just judgments and they just need to be observations. Like that judgment doesn't have to get directed back onto the self mm -hmm. constantly. Mm -hmm. It can just be observed. And that's been a huge lesson, I think, for me. Just yeah. redirecting the judgment yeah i mean maybe it's um my uh moon in the first ruling the eighth and my ascendant ruler in the eighth <laughs> but like i do really um and i'll also say i have the moon in the first very closely conjunct i'm sorry mars in the first very closely conjunct my moon so in like homoracist they're in the same term Mm. And so like my moon is also maltreated by Mars and it's a little different because it's the upset, what have you. But I really like this idea of like, uh, I've had, you know, a lot of challenging experiences in my life and I've had the opportunity, I suppose, to choose whether or not I was going to find meaning from those. Uh, and so I really like exploring this idea of astrology of um, like what role hardship or suffering can play in your life and how that could potentially be 
a beneficial thing in the long term, even if in the short term it's, or even if in moments that manifests in incredibly painful ways. And so it's interesting to hear you talk about like the lessons that you've learned uh, in your life as a result of like this square between your moon and your Saturn and how you've been able to, you know, take judgment, like this feel very kind of Gemini Saturn thing and learn a lesson of how to kind of navigate that and interact with that. And yeah, I feel like some of the difficult things in our charts, you know, you, you mentioned the term like work, like the, that's the work of our life. And I feel like sometimes that can be, can be the case. And, um, you know, in my own experience, it's not always pleasant. It's not always fun, uh, but there can be some meaning found in it uh, if one chooses potentially. And it's like, not everything is meant to be meaningful. There's sometimes things just kind of happen and um, there is an element, I think, to chaos in the universe, but yeah. I found that because of like a spiritual relationship, I can make meanings of some of these things. And so it's interesting to hear your experience and thank you for sharing it. Yeah, no, and likewise to you, that was, um, yeah, it's, it's, it can feel like uncomfortable divulging these things, right? Cause we're just invoking and calling on these things that hold that resonance of those things in our lives or in ourselves that we yeah, feel blocked by or obstructed by, but yeah, it just brings us right back to, it's all about the the full embrace of the self, you know, and mm. like that's also Pisces, like realizing, you know, this was something I I mentioned in a class I did recently on like timing, where this question of fate and free will and like how much say we have on what happens versus what's already predetermined. And I really I referenced what Rob had said because I really love it how um in this interview back in like the eighties, he was just was like Astrology is just applied mysticism. So in the moment of meditation, there's no thought about who's participating with what. Mm. It's just absorption into oneness. Mm. And when we stop trying to figure out who's in control, what's already determined, what can I change? And we just realize it's all just one big machine and it's just happening and it's just going to happen as it's supposed to. Mm. And like tomorrow, like, you can try to go and change what you think your transit is going to do, but somehow whatever you do is still already going to be written in it. Like mm. it doesn't matter. Right. So I guess the point's just like, it's just applied mysticism. We're just realizing how one we are with everything. Mm. And just again, is a metaphor for, yeah, even those parts of our chart that are, um, yeah, highlighting the difficult experiences we go through as humans. Um, embracing them is a path towards liberation just as much as finding the planet that's most dignified is you know some curios or, or whatever you want to call it you know there was never you know, there was just porphyry's way um mm -hmm. and i still use that because i think it's a pretty ingenious method but just to say that you know the planet that's most situated most um you know beneficially situated can offer just as much insight into personal healing and liberation that you know that dark malefic retrograde in the 12th house can as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How do considerations of myth play into your understanding and experience of either or both the moon and the sign of Pisces? Um, yeah, well, I think 
there's definitely some interesting mythological like correlations that even authors back in the tradition began to write like in these astrology textbooks because unfortunately so much of it has been unwritten and was an oral tradition that was passed along you know all those myths all came from us trying to you know storytell about what we saw up in the sky and like with pisces um the author manilius um who wrote um extensive poems um didactic poems um where he taught astrology in verse in meter um he actually referenced that neptune or poseidon was um a, the god that ruled over the pisces and mm. i think that's really interesting because we know nowadays in this you know 20th and 21st century this has reemerged into our collective consciousness of identifying that deity with this sign as controversial as that is to maybe define it as rulership um mm -hmm. in terms of like managing this sign and other notions of like traditional planetary rulership that's you know debated um but i think sympathetically when we think about neptune or poseidon in the vast expanse of the ocean mm -hmm. um that piscean embrace again into the unknown right like the ocean is like we've like barely even explored like right i, I don't know the percentage but it's huge and it's right. like just think about being you know alone at sea and there's nothing but you and the stars and the infinite waters and just that expanse that we again can't contain beyond just a feeling of um feeling like a grain of sand you know mm. on the beach um i feel like neptune in that way that it can distort perspective sometimes is the gift that pisces gives by being able to scale things scaling time scaling perspective places peoples mm. um like having that lack in some ways and that's the fall really of mercury here is that in lacking the precision of measurement what pisces can do is be able to measure on every scale because it kind of lacks a reference place to really accurately make its measurements from so mm. by just relying on the instinctual or um i guess rather irrational principle um its measurements can take it you know further than it may have ever expected if it has enough mm. you know optimism and confidence it can go there but then again you know if it's too doubtful it might it might just absorb itself into fear which i think is another saturn in pisces thing that is very relevant to pisces placements because of that universality of possibility and infinite potential um i think that fear can often introduce itself as a piscean thing because again that destruction of the mephexis like the corruption of the immutable perfect divine chain of being like that's so detrimental to what pisces wants to do and so i think we can often spend our times again in the past or future right elsewhere to avoid addressing when that chain is out of link um so yeah those are i don't know some yeah <laughs> went a few different places but neptune yeah it reminds me it reminds me of this idea of, of intuition and it's like what is intuition it's kind of like this kind of synthesis of the senses in a sense mm. it's kind of almost it's this like leap beyond the senses uh which feels very kind of neptunian in a way yeah yeah i love that and again like the dissolving boundaries right like 
not being able to rely on what you can see here, taste, touch, or smell, but going to stillness and just perceiving mm. good or bad or indifferent, right? It's just about when we can try to minimize all of our attachments to whatever the earthly mind has to respond or contribute to, you know, your thought process about something like, well, what is, what does my daimon think about it? You know, and just mm -hmm. try to meditate on that. And that's not easy, but like, if we really need guidance, like Pisces just can remind us that it's always in there if we just don't worry about it too much. Right. If we can get to relaxation and kind of move outside of the, the mind or the logical, rational mind, you know, mm -hmm. we can get to this place where we can touch deeper waters that have different information to give to us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Um, well, how do you, or what, what have you found from tracking the cycles of the moon in relation to your own emotional life? I'm really curious about this because I have like some interesting things that happen when the moon's in different signs. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition, like, um, is the moon an important part of your spiritual practice? Interested to hear if you have, you know, whatever you feel comfortable sharing in relation to that as well. Yeah. I mean, so tracking moon cycles for my life. Um, yeah. Um, of course, I think that's a great gateway for everyone who's beginning astrology is like, you know, just look at Luna, you know, waxing, waning. Um, and I feel like for me, as I experience it, um, yeah, I mean, it has, has ebbs and flows and it's also it is complex and nuanced because you know maybe one part of the year she's waxing in a certain sign and then six months later she's only waning when she's there right so these things are nuanced and it mm. it is interesting because when you read like um like firmicus who just went off <laughs> writing about all the complex nuances of lunar motion um you realize how much all those factors taken into account really do change the picture um so again i guess this is that annoying big perspective on like how things happen and maybe that's my that moon saturn square like just wanting to reconcile that i i can't understand it because it's too complex for me but like mm. i don't know so i guess so some some ways i do feel it definitely like i mean when the moon's in taurus that's when she's exalted and so for me that's in my 12th house mm. so like when i experience that um i often have really intense dreams they're usually very visceral um but also can be um sort of oracular i usually get really interesting messages and usually don't know why or what they mean until way after or sometimes it never surfaces completely um but that's one way that always um is very clear for me every month um my lunar return of course when the moon's in pisces is always a really special time to connect in with myself and my goals and where I'm headed and how I'm feeling and again mm. being indifferent and just being okay with where I'm at because Saturn's always trying to keep things in line and keep things going and um yeah some months don't work like that and uh yeah that's like challenging in, in different ways because it's hard to let ourselves like or for myself at least um hard to let myself rest sometimes because mm. There's that propensity to feel productive, which is really detrimental. And um, I think our society has put that in different ways on a lot of us and feeling that kind of pressure. Um, 
So I think lunar returns are a great time to relieve that stress and just be with yourself. And, mm. you know, for myself, like love taking a nice bath um, on a lunar return. Um, and it. yeah, I mean, like moon and Sag is always, you know, in my seventh house and I'm usually hanging out with other people or going out um, or yeah, just meeting up with friends. Like that's always been pretty on point. Um, I usually clean my room when the moon's in Virgo because that's my fourth house. Cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these things play out like they do. Um, but, yeah, I, def I, I also do track them with, like, the perfected sign and even the monthly perfected, too. Um, and the, those just, they give the same insight, you know, like, when it's, like, my Aquarius year, like, my Leo moon's the seventh house. Like, this year, like, that's often also been another time when I'm seeing people or or hanging out with friends or whatever. So like there's other ways that, that that can show up too that again just speaks to the manifold ways we can track symbolically what mm -hmm. what things are shifting to indicate. Awesome. Is there anything you want to add though? Any imparting thoughts about the moon? Um yeah, I will say and maybe touching a little bit on the second half of the question relating to like spiritual practice. The moon does again she's really her own sphere like she really needs to be considered like just as individual if not kind of more in some ways because she's so nuanced um mm -hmm. like she she also has her own um i don't want to call it a zodiac but she has her own unique division of the sky which you know called the lunar mansions or lunar stations or manzils or nakshatras like however you're familiar with this um based on her like 28 29 30 27 <laughs> however you want to divide it day cycle yeah. um again you know where there's symbolism you can peek around the corner and find it and get some interesting results so with these lunar mansions yeah i think they're an interesting way to tune in magically with the lunar cycle if that's something that you want to delve into if you're looking to enhance your connection to the moon tracking just every day you know she's in a new mansion and just you don't even need to like start reading ancient texts about whatever happens like just write how you felt that day and then kind of keep checking back every month and seeing any patterns or any connections um and there are interesting ways that the symbolism will show up though when there's like certain you know references to um gosh like yeah you know these mansions they particularly like in the medieval period were used in a magical context mm -hmm. in terms of like the creation and construction of like talismans and so there are you know of course spirits that reside and reign over the domains of each mansion that can be petitioned for certain affairs right. and so there's also that window that it does open up if you're curious enough to you know dive into talking with even like this is the spirit of your natal lunar mansion mm -hmm. um, is another interesting way you could enhance um, or just dive into a deeper lunar practice. Um, but yeah, you can look at your progressed moons, lunar magic. I mean, it's just like, it's again, it's like what, whatever you want to do, whatever is calling you. But um, yeah, just my point was just if you're interested in tapping into that, that the lunar mansions are a really cool layer of the firmament that access um, really unique spiritual and like inner, inner worldly activities that are kind of. Yeah. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, yeah, I totally agree. And I've started, um, like I've started 
doing some consults. I've mostly done trades with other professional astrologers, which Uh I really enjoy because like I get to see how they work, which feels so like almost more valuable than money to to me at this point, you know, to just like see how another astrologer works. And um, I've started uh, looking at the, the natal uh, Manzo nakshatra uh in all of those and and going over those with with clients and that's been really cool really interesting yeah that's 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 awesome they're really fascinating i didn't think though about looking at the progressed lunar mansion that's that's cool i'm gonna have to look at mine when we hop off yeah well you'll have one every two and a half years so it's kind of interesting to think about um i'm sorry once a year um so she'll kind of change with your perfection Mm -hmm. um which is interesting to think about but yeah, that's it's an idea. Or continuously perfect it and get you know go through all thirty every twelve years. But I'm right. getting too mercurial. <laughs> right, like you can, yeah. Uh, time time lords out the out the yeah. years. Yeah. Um. All right. Wonderful. Uh, where can we find you, Cameron? And is there anything you are working on that you'd like to share with us? Yeah. So um, I am on Twitter and Instagram. Um and soon to come YouTube at Omega Astrology. Um, and plugging, I think we've already talked about everything that I'm doing at the moment. Um, doing a podcast with Stella Moet, who um, is a great friend of mine, and we do a podcast called The Mercuranians together where we just talk about astrology. And right now we're like in our kind of second-ish season, I guess you could call it, where we're just reading through um, passages, extended, extended passages of Rhetorius, which has been really fun. And I also, like we talked about early on in the episode, um, I released a poster um, that is essentially a guide to working with all these different things we were talking about today, all these different kinds of rulership systems, subdivisions, fixed stars and constellations and decans and 12 parts, all that stuff is kind of, um, yeah, kind of synthesized into one image that sort of acts like a mandala because it's there's kind of all these layers of nuance and complexity interacting with each other that it's really beautiful to just kind of sit and uh, meditate with. So yeah, that's part of the reason I really wanted to make it available as as a poster um, so that people could have it visually in front of them, you know, big to really just let themselves absorb into that that consciousness. Um, So yeah, if you're interested, you can go on my website and check out the Codex Mundi, um, which is the name for the project. And yeah. And so you did an original run of a hundred that sold out very quickly and now you're doing another, another run. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the orders are open. You can uh, continue to purchase it if you'd like. Um, but yeah, I'm just shipping out the second batches in the coming days. So you'll still get it very soon. Very cool. And you're also open for a bunch of different, uh, needle consults as well as horror. Yes. All, yeah, my books are open. So Natal, annual, horary astrology. I also launched a tutoring service. So if you're curious to study with me in some capacity, then that's also something I'm offering now. So, yeah. Amazing. And I'll link your website in the show notes uh, and all that. Well, Cameron, thank you so much again for being on the show today, sharing your vast knowledge with us um, and as well as some very uh, touching experiences. Yeah, it was really an honor to be a part of the conversation with you. Um, so thank you for having me. Thank you for everyone to who's everyone who's still listening. And um, <laughs> yeah, I hope everyone has a great rest of their day. All right, cool, Cameron. Thank you. Talk to you soon. See you.
To support the show by donating or becoming a member, please visit my website, which is linked in the show notes. And please subscribe to the show wherever you listen. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter. See those links in the show notes as well. If you have any questions or feedback on the show, please feel free to contact me via my website or email me at sphallhorary at gmail.com. In the show notes, you can also find links to astrologers and resources that we touched on in this episode. Thanks. See you next time.